go ahead and get started. I hate to break up the good conversations. <laughs> it's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, this is going to be over the second chapter of uh, this book right here. I don't know how many people actually have a copy of the book. Um, it's called A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard Rob go through the first chapter and get everybody all riled up. Um, I, I would love to say I'm going to answer all of your questions today. That will not be the case. Um, but as you have questions, as things pop up in your head, whether they be from uh, the last session we had or, or this one, um, this, is, this is supposed to be as interactive as possible as we can make Sunday school. So um, if you have something that you want to say, um, I'll try not to miss you if you put your hand up. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll try to get through uh, everybody's comments and, and questions and concerns as we go through this chapter. Um, I think that's a lot of the difference between this one and the ones we've been going through. <clears throat> Uh, there should be a lot more time for some interaction between us, so uh, don't be scared to raise your hand, or if you completely disagree with something I say, uh, stop me, please. <laughs> um, so before we get started, uh, I'm going to read a prayer from the book Prone to Wander. This one is called Trust, so if you would uh, bow your heads with me. Holy One, we confess that we are people who do not trust you. We are stubborn and rebellious, habitually unwilling to hear your loving, fatherly instruction. We have repeatedly despised your words and have even despised your incarnate word, Jesus Christ, pursuing him to death. We have carried out our own plans for our lives, disregarding your loving plan or treating it as second best when the plan is involving pain or not getting what we want. When we suffer, we lose confidence that you love us, and we experience spiritual amnesia, living as orphans. We have trusted in our desires for physical and emotional comfort, approval from others, health, wealth, success, or intimacy. <clears throat> we have relied on our perverseness of obsessing food, drink, and sexuality, or other people to bring us peace. We often do not return to you. We frequently do not rest in you. We seldom are quiet before you. And we consistently do not trust you. Please help us in our helplessness, Lord. Dear Jesus, what a specific, staggering, atoning love you have shown us in the midst of our weakness. On our behalf, you flawlessly trusted your Father, you relied perfectly on his spirit and were willing to obey every element of every law, command, and instruction. Your love for us and your trust for your father caused you to be silent before your false accusers, enduring torturous punishment for sin you did not commit. The sin you were dying for was ours, and we are eternally, deeply grateful for the inconceivable act of love. Because you took on our sin, 
becoming an orphan as you were abandoned by your father, we will never be orphans again. Our sins, though like scarlet, are now white as snow before the judgment seat, washed in the cleansing, healing stream of blood drawn from your veins. Help us, our Father, to trust you in the midst of this earthly life. We grow weary, and our strength is small as we fight against the sin in our hearts and in the hearts of others. Help us to find our all in all in no less than Jesus Christ himself. Cause us to live so that others would see the strength to trust you could never come from us. Help us to sing salvation songs in the midst of our in the midst in the midnight of our suffering. Awaken us to trust you in the midst of the prison of sinful flesh and remind us that our freedom has fully and finally been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to forget to click this button, I promise, multiple times today. Um, so here's our schedule again, uh, as Rob laid out for us last, last time. Uh, today is the 8th, I hope. Um, our next, uh, this is going to be conf- our confidence in God. Uh, next time will be confidence in the Bible. I have a couple of weeks of break to uh, uh, recover from all of this information you're going to get. Um, and then January 5th will be confidence in Christ, the 12th confidence in the gospel, and then finally confidence in hope. So that is our look ahead for the beginning of next year um, as we, we go through this, this uh, rather short book, but very good book. Um, I want to start this lesson by taking a look at a well-known hymn. So... Other than Rob, and Dennis said he might have, you read the chapter, you don't get to answer then. Who, who wrote this hymn? Very good. Martin Luther. What, this is uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, so I'm going to read it. Again, I'm going to try to do that and remember to click the button too. Um, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For sin our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Jesus Christ, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim We tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, one little word shall fail him. Oops, sorry. That word, oops, sorry, I did it again. I'm going to double click too. 
That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So does anybody know what state Luther was in when he wrote this hymn? What he was going through in his life? Oh, so his uh, infant daughter, Elizabeth, had recently died. Um, she, she was just a few months old. Um, there was a plague in the city. He had been betrayed, and this movement that he had started was now drowning him. Um, but in, 19, in 1527, in the midst of heavy calamity in his life, he wrote this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He knew what he had to look he knew that he had to look past himself, his strength and his ability. Um, he had this uh, vision that Rob talked about last, uh, last week, um, looking past our circumstances, being able to see, see past those things. Uh, does this sound like a man who had confidence in God? It does to me. Um, Elizabeth Elliot says in her book, Suffering is never, never for Nothing, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering, and out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. I think that's exactly where Luther was. So back to the first two verses of this song. So what are the benefits that belong to us from some of these, uh, from these verses? Um, who is on our side? Christ, our elder brother, our Lord and Redeemer, he is on our side. Should we have confidence in the outcome of this fight? Yeah, the end of it says he must win the battle. And what abides? God's word abides. And what do we have? We have the spirit and we have the gifts. And then what about us? It says, the body they may kill, but his kingdom is forever. We can be sure of this. This is uh, based on... This, this song was based on the beginning of Psalm 46. Uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when her morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes the wars cease and to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. 
He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So this all sounds good in our head, and it makes uh, really good Sunday school material. Uh, But how does this translate in our everyday lives? Luther understood this and believed every single word. But during our toughest moments in our lives, do we have this same confidence in God that he did? That's sort of a rhetorical question. Um, I would say I I definitely um, lack a lot of the confidence that I feel like he had here. And the writer of this psalm also had. So, who are our enemies? There's always been three. The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of these enemies stand against God, His kingdom, and His people. So, you all know that I am um, younger in the spectrum of young to old, I guess. Um, But... I have not personally seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Don't throw anything at me, please. I know that's terrible. Um, I know. I know, I know. Um, So from that, um, there is, uh, during the 1924 Paris Olympics, Eric Little, a Scottish Olympic sprinter, um, mainly the 100 and 200 meter uh, sprinter, Once he found out the opening heat for the 100 was going to be on Sunday, uh, he refused to run. Uh, Due to his convictions, his Scottish Scottish Presbyterian convictions um, of the Sabbath, he refused to run. So what did he do instead? Not on that day that he was going to run, because that's coming later, but instead of running the 100, he decided to do what? He did, but he decided to uh, run a 400 instead, which anybody who's run, been a, in track and field, knows that the 100 and 200 are not the same race as the 400. Um, that's a, <clears throat> the first two are sprinters, quick bursts of energy. The 400 is a little bit longer than that. Um, and sprinters don't typically make <clears throat> great 400-meter runners. Uh, but he did it anyways. Um, and in the face of even the Prince of Wales uh, trying to convince him to run on Sunday in the 100, he would not cave, he would not capitulate, um, he would not stand for the pressure that the nation tried to put on him, this world. Um, He chose to instead, as Art said, on that Sunday, preach. He went to a church and preached. And he preached over the section, uh, the chapter of Isaiah that we're going to be going through today. Um, That's Isaiah 40. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40, we're going to read the whole thing. So uh, be patient with me as we uh, go through and, and read it. Before we, actually before we read it, Um, 
How would you describe the first 39 chapters of Isaiah? Anybody other than Dennis? You don't get to answer this. Yes. Um, I've got two columns. I'm not great with PowerPoint, so that was the best I could do. They didn't get to drop in all one after another. But which one of these sides? Uh, Roxanne said judgment. Somebody else might have even said bleak. Um, so the right side. It's not overly encouraging chapters. Um, definitely not lighthearted. Um, there's some terrifying language in the first 39 chapters. But we get to chapter 40. Sorry, you guys, you're going to have to be patient with me. So this is what Nichols says about it. Uh, Sin was the seed that had been sown. The harvest of judgment was coming. But then comes chapter 40. What's the, anybody who's got their Bible open already, what's the first word in chapter 40? It actually says it twice in a row. Um, pretty important then, right? So, after all of this judgment and terrifying language and bleakness, we get the word comfort twice. Um, so how, how are these people supposed to feel this comfort? They were exiles in a foreign land. Their homeland, the promised land, had been besieged and laid waste. The holy city was now a pile of rubble, and the temple was in ruins. This, this seems like, this seems very counterintuitive to, to drop in right here. But let's, re- let's read it. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. O voice says, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says to the city of Judah. Say to the city of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord and what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts from for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chose wood, chooses wood and that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created this. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we're going to kind of just go through um, this book, Isaiah 40. Uh, so as we go through these verses, uh, try to pick out some of the phrases that point to God's attributes. We just spent multiple weeks going through the attributes of God, and so maybe it's still fresh on your mind. And um, So if you, if you see something that I don't say, uh, let me know. Uh, so verses 3 and 4 here, uh, these two verses show us how God will make a way for their return from exile. He will straighten the paths, remove mountains, fill in lowlands. There will be no physical obstacles preventing their return. So this sounds like 
God's awesome power, His omnipotence. And these verses all point to what? What are these first, the verses three and four, verses three and four point to? Uh, verse five tells us. Anybody? All of this is for the purpose of putting his glory on display for all to see. So what about verses 6, 7, and 8? These three verses really put us in our place. Um, We are like uh, grass, and our beauty is like a flower. Uh, We wither and we fade, just like the grass and the flowers do. But what's it say about the Word of God? It stands forever. So I'm going to let Rob deal with that, take that baton next week. Um, But yes, this shows shows us the eternality of God and His Word. So what is the purpose of this heralding in verse 9? What's the point of it? Why is, why is he telling, telling them to do this? Absolutely. And also that they would take their eyes off of their present circumstances and look to God. So... Um, this word, this word, behold, um, my first thought of behold, I always think of uh, Disney movies and the bad guy when he thinks he's won, he's always, behold my power, or be, behold whatever it is, right? It's behold the underminer. Anybody? Incredibles. Very nice. Um, hey. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometime soon, I'll get to it. Um, so, so they don't just say, "Hey, look at me." It's it's always this this grand, grand see me for who I am. Um, so, the word "behold," I don't use that word in my everyday language, but um, that's typically what is trying to be conveyed: is this this deep look at, at something. It's not just a fervent glance. It's it's really seeing something for what it is. Um, so, so I'm a sucker for a good um, sunset. Um, when you look at a sunset, do you just kind of, oh, yeah, that was cool. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm weird that way. No, you, you, you see all of the, the different colors and the, and, the, and the beauty that's there. Um, but you don't do that by just looking at it. You, you do that by really taking it all in, every angle of it, as the, as the minutes go by, how the colors change. Um, that's what it is to behold something. What about 10 and 11? So chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah are filled with judgment, but there's a shift here. What, does verse 11 sound like judgment? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. 
He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That sounds like a compassionate, caring, loving God who's going to literally scoop us up and carry us because we can't do it ourselves. Um, This is a tender picture of the mighty God stooping low to gather us into his arms, to lift us up and to carry us close, to carry us all the way to his perfect plan of redemption. We see here a picture of the tender mercies of God. That's a quote from Nichols. But how hard would it be to see this deliverance in the middle of their exile with the world powers, the greatest powers of the time, preventing their return? God is saying to these people, I am in control, trust in me. God is displaying, is, is putting his sovereignty on display here. And he's also showing us that he is a gracious God, full of love for his children. But, let's be honest with ourselves. Which camp do we fall in? Do we trust in the God who is revealed in Scripture, or do we doubt? I know nobody here has been exiled from their homeland, but we fall in the same trap when the weight of the world is pressing in on us How do we respond when God, in his infinite wisdom, places us in a situation where we feel like we are emotionally drowning? Do we trust him because of who he is, or do we doubt? Are we a people, or are we a people who latch on to a verse like verse 11, knowing that God is in control, and he will scoop us up and carry us through the fiery trials? So if verses 1 through 11 were about God declaring his deliverance of his people, what were 12 through 31 about? Anybody? Any guesses? They're about? Absolutely. His power, how great he is. Nothing can compare to him. So first, in uh, verse 12, we see God's power in creation. There are some pretty incredible word pictures here. Um, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? I like that one. In a measure. He's, He's measured the dust of the earth and weighed the mountains in a scale. I just see this like a mountain on one of those old... Scales, uh, teetering scales. It's just a mountain sitting there. No big deal. And the hills in the balance. Some pretty incredible pictures of his power in creation. Uh, What about 13 and 14? This shows us the supremacy of God over these so-called gods. Um, The nations, the other nations' gods were all the same in that multiple gods would get together and convene and, and talk to one, in, one another to make important decisions, um, similar to a president and his cabinets and his cabinet members. So um, our God doesn't do that. He doesn't have to ask anybody for help. 
for understanding. No one taught him the path of justice. Our God in his infinite wisdom and omniscience gains understanding from no one. I also think that we overlook um, how important these verses were to these people who were exiled. The exiled people were in a land that was filled with highly spiritual people. This wasn't a secular world like we live in now. These, all of the people around them were, were spiritual people. Um, most of the time, people thought that if one nation came in and destroyed another nation, conquered another nation, that that nation's gods actually conquered the other nation's gods. And so, clearly, that means that this god is greater than this god. Um, and so there's a chance that even some of the people in exile were feeling this way about their own God, that Marduk had actually conquered Yahweh. And so I think that's an important thing that we may overlook because it, it's not as impactful to us that way, but um, it may have been hugely important for them to hear these things. What about 15 and 16? How does this make us feel about our own nation? All of these nations and ours are like a drop from a bucket. One drop. Sounds pretty pitiful. Makes us feel very small and inconsequential in the grand scheme of who God is. That we are like a drop from a bucket. What about Lebanon? Lebanon was known for its vast forests of cedar and also all the animals that lived in this forest. Um, not even all of the cedars of these forests, no matter how vast they are, and all of the animals in it could suffice for the sacrifices for their sins. And what about 17? Would you find comfort in this verse? In their current situation, they were scared of the nations. So for them to hear this powerful, hear that these powerful nations are nothing, even less than nothing, do you think that they would find comfort in that statement? All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. That's, as I put my self in, in their shoes for a moment, um, that verse would give me great comfort knowing that the people who have exiled me, the nations who have exiled me, are nothing to God. And if he says that he will return us to our promised land, then we will be returned. So these exiled people needed the vision that we talked about in chapter 1. If all we do is see what is in front of us, we are prone to despair. We can easily doubt, and we must have the vision of God, our all in all. Here's a quote from Nichols. Anyone who can read and who will submit to God's word will conclude that God is in control. They will mentally affirm that and assent to that. 
To know this doctrine experientially might be another thing altogether. Knowing it experientially means to trust and not to fear. Knowing it experientially means to boldly proclaim and live by the gospel and not to cower and cave and give up those beliefs in the light of opposition and challenge. The body they may kill, easier to sing than to live. Do you agree with this quote? Absolutely. So here again, he's back on the case of these false gods and God displaying his power over them. He's almost making fun of them, in a sense. Um, he talks about the sarcasm that is in these verses. Um, he's saying, you better get a skilled craftsman to build your idol so that it won't fall over. That's how ridiculous these idols are. Uh, you don't want them to fall over. You don't want somebody to just walk by in a strong wind, knock it, knock it down. Um, how, how silly this sounds, but it, it was the, things, the thing to be done then. So God's omnipotence is on display again here, 21 through 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. There's that emptiness again. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I don't much like being called a grasshopper, but again... And putting us in our place. Um, this, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. This, this, again, these word, the word pictures in here are incredible. So what happens in 27? What's this the beginning of? He's anticipating something. Is anticipating the question that not only these exiled people have, but also that we have in our current situations. <clears throat> okay, but does, does God notice me? I know God is omnipotent, but what about me? The grasshopper from verse 22. So Nichols asked the question this way, Will his omnipotence reach down to my present moment, my challenge, my fear, my doubt. Will it? Will he? Calvin says this about the question being asked. The Lord intends to stir the hearts of the godly that they may not faint amidst heavy calamity. 
that they might not sink under any distresses however long and continued. So is that what he's doing here? Is that what God is doing in our suffering, in our circumstances, in our world where uh, we feel like we are now the outcast? We have seen God's power on display over the nations and over the false gods. And now, after this question, we see God's power displayed in the lives of his people. God not only demonstrates his power, but he delights to do so in the lives of his people. This is our confidence in God. He delights to save us, to help us, to strengthen us, and to comfort us. So let's read these again. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what's the contrast in these verses? What's being contrasted here? God and everybody else. <laughs> God's power and our weakness. So this is, again, this is humbling for the youth because he even says they will grow weary. They will faint. That eventually everybody runs out of steam. Us with younger children know that most of the time we can just wait them out. They'll, they'll crash eventually. But you got to wait them out. And, the, and, and God is telling us here in his word that even the youth shall faint and be weary and fall exhausted, especially on their return. This, this is not just a short journey. They're, this return is going to take time. And so he's telling them, they, even the youth will, will faint and be weary. So Matthew, Matthew Henry uh, stated, We must therefore be fully convinced of our weakness so that we may yield to the power of God. I think that's hugely important in verses like these. That we have to understand our own weakness before we'll ever yield to the power of God and His will. If we think that we can do it all ourselves and that I just need to work a little harder I, need, I just need to try a little harder. I need to do a little bit more. I need this. I need that. I'm placing all of my trust in my work, my efforts, and I'm not relying on God. I'm not trusting in Him fully to get me through, especially the difficult things that we go through in our lives. At some point, we reach the end of ourselves. 
Some maybe earlier than others. And the wisest of us gave in to the idea early in life that the one that Luther states in his hymn, our striving would be losing. So back to Israel. All of them, even the most vigorous, would reach their limits and grow weary. But those who waited on God would be strengthened and be enabled to make the journey. We must stop relying on ourselves, on our plans. Waiting means to move out of the way and to wholly trust and rely upon God. Does anybody know of a, a phrase that we use that um, sounds very, very similar to that? Yep. I said it again. Don't throw anything at me. So I've always had a very negative um, outlook on that phrase, um, that that sounds like lazy Christians or easy believism or things like that. But I think there is some truth to that statement of not relying on ourselves and relying wholly on God to get us through it. It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't try. But it's not resting on our own understanding and our own efforts to get us through, especially the fiery trials. Um, and those that have gone through those trials in their lives know that the greatest gain they've made in those fiery trials is, be, is in those times where God has taken you so low that you could not do any more yourself. The only thing you could do was trust in him to get through those times. And I think that's exactly what he's, he's pointing to here. So the last three lines of this, who thinks they're out of order? Why, why would he put mount up on wings like eagles and then run and not be weary and then walk? That sounds kind of anticlimactic. We wanted to hear the, the walk and then run and then soar. So, sounds like uh, what we would want, what would, what would come to our mind at least. So this is what uh, Nichols says about this metaphor. I think that uh, I, there was no way I was going to say it any better than, than he did. The soaring like an eagle, running and walking are all metaphors. Let's carry those metaphors through. Seldom do we need those bursts of strength to fly like an eagle. And occasionally we need to run, but, consist, but consistently and constantly we walk. It's rather mundane. You might even use the word ordinary. That God, um, and, and so it's in the ordinary that God meets us. Sorry, I lost my place. <clears throat> And so, it's in the ordinary that God meets us. God meets us at our everyday tasks and at the, the momentous occasions of our life and everywhere in between. There is nothing we do that is too little, nor is there anything we do that is too big for God to work in us and for God to strengthen us. It is in the activities of our lives and the events of our lives that God shows himself, some, himself and proves himself able in all the moments and activities of our lives, God is demonstrating His power in us and through us. 
God delights to demonstrate His power in the lives of His people. As they live in between the promise and its fulfillment, they wait. They find their power in God. So we can be confident. Is our situation as bad as Israel's was? As they sat beside a campfire under a foreign oppressor with deliverance generations away, yet Isaiah's audience was commanded to look to God, to be confident in God. God would pick them up like little lambs and bring them home. This is a word of comfort. God alone is worthy of our confidence. It is, it is we who miss out when we fail to put our confidence in God. Luther has it right. A mighty fortress is our, go- our God, a bulwark never failing. R.C. Sproul has said many times that our biggest problem is that we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. And I think that Isaiah 40 is a good place to start to learn about God and about ourselves. So why is it that we can soar like an eagle or run and not grow weary or walk and not faint? Anybody? Because of God, we do. There was a time when Christ could not walk, and he fainted under the power of his cross. He took upon himself our sin and our unrighteousness, our weakness, our frailty, our inability. Do we feel the weight of Isaiah 53.10? Hear these devastating words. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. As we think of these beautiful verses in Isaiah 40, we know that these are true because of, the verse, because of a verse like Isaiah 53.10. There is one who did faint for us. There is one who was crushed for us. And God, in power, raised him from the dead. The ultimate demonstration of the power of God is at the cross and at the empty tomb. Because of that demonstration of God's power at the cross and at the resurrection, we are his people. We are his lamb. God will gather us up in his arms. This is our God. In him we firmly and securely put our confidence. God will never disappoint. For he tells us, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 So this chapter really presses in on our issue right now being that we don't know who God is. Our current culture, cultural understanding of who God is, is wrong. What we're hearing around us in the culture today is wrong. It's a wrong picture of who God is. We must get back to who God is and who our current culture... Oh, sorry. We must get back to who God is, who He really is, who the Bible says He is. Just like these exiled people, we live in a culture that is opposed to God. That's not new to anybody here. We feel it. We're feeling it more and more every day. But the people 
The culture around us is opposed to God. It is part of the world. So before we finish up, any comments, concerns, questions? Nothing? Nobody? Yeah. It, it's definitely a progression in that way. Yeah. But this is just one chapter. How, how many more places? I mean, you guys could probably name hundreds of verses that do the exact same thing that this chapter does for you. It, it is placing your confidence in God. There's so many places. Um, I thought about asking everybody to just try to tell me theirs, but it, I don't know how long it would take to flip, flip through and try to find them all. And Absolutely. And, and how, how much does it help to talk to others about their situation and encourage them in their struggles, their suffering, how much does that help your own battles? And just remind you of, and, and to look back, just like Bonnie said, look, look back at what God has done previously in your life. There's some who have more of those than others, but God has always been faithful, and, and we've got to place our confidence in a God who, who we know is in control, who created all of this. Um, that, that's a good place to start. <laughs> The creator of all things has a plan for us and he is working that plan through to its completion and we are called to be faithful and obedient to him. Anybody else? Final comments? An age thing? That is a good point. Bobby said that the, there's an age aspect to the to those last three lines of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> You've already just given into it though. That's that's the problem. So what, what's up next? Uh, the next one is our confidence in the Bible. <clears throat> Can we trust what is written is true? And do you trust what it says? I think those are two important uh, questions that you can wrestle with before next week. And, and uh, Rob will be there to lead you through it. I'll give you two extra minutes to to socialize with one another. Thank you, guys.